the failure to act with sufficient ambition to avert the climate catastrophe will be the greatest moral failure of our time. Making changes takes courage, and if we don't change things, we won't have a future. We need a president who respects science, who understands that the damage from climate change is already here. You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. Change is coming, whether you like it or not. Zero Carbon Easter. Hello and welcome to Zero Carbon Easter Series 2, The Manifesto. I'm Ian Collins and for the newbies out there, this is the only podcast of its kind that will give you the real lowdown on all the major environmental stories alongside some honest and qualified opinion. Many have tried, few have succeeded. That's because our man with the conch each week is Dale Vince, the accidental businessman, more prominently I would suggest these days, the environmentalist. Dale, afternoon. Yeah, Ian, how are you doing? It is afternoon, unusual for yeah. us, of course, and, and it's a Wednesday, not a Friday, also unusual for us. But, There's a reason uh, for that. Yeah, good reason. So this Friday, instead of recording this podcast, I'm going to be at Rugby, a new service station that Moto have built, and there we've built our first high-powered charging bays for the electric highway. Fabulous. Bit of, bit of a breakthrough. It's been a couple of years in the making, actually, so the whole service station has, as well as our part of it. Yeah, yeah. And we're um, we're installing twelve three hundred and fifty kilowatt chargers, which is you know just incredible. It's like a vision of the future for electric vehicle charging. They're all contactless, so you don't need an app or a membership or anything. Just rock up. Well, it's plug and play, really. That's incredible. So we're now looking because you know it seems seems like an age ago that you'd walk into a petrol station or a service station. There may or may not be a charging point. And if there was, you know, a bloke would go, yeah, it's that thing over there in a the corner, mate. And you think, right, okay, is that it? And now you're talking about a bay of 12. I mean, this this is up there with as many fuel pumps. It is actually it's more, I think, uh, than you typically find in fuel pump numbers on motorway service stations. And up until now, of course, we've had a couple of pumps at every motorway service station. And, I mean, that's been like that for 10 years. We haven't really expanded that. And, and partly that's because the load factor was super low. You know, there weren't that many cars on the road. That's begun to change in the last couple of years. And we're at 50 kilowatts for those pumps. And the, you know, the new standards coming out are right up to 350 kilowatts. It's interesting. There are no cars on the road that can take it. There will be soon. Uh, but the pumps are now way ahead of the cars. Which They're is- ahead of the cars. And that's a game changer, isn't it? So if you were charging up a typical, I know, what is a typical electric car these days? There are now so many. But if you were charging it up, how long is that going to take you? Well, the interesting thing about that is not to think in terms of full charge, uh, but like how long does it take to get 100 miles in your tank? Five yep. minutes. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, brilliant. And and it's bringing us to a point where using an electric car is just like using a fossil-powered car. You know, most people pop to a petrol station once a fortnight, sometimes once a week, but typically once a fortnight, spend five or ten minutes filling up and then off you go again. That this is coming now. This is the new reality for electric vehicles. And range anxiety is just going to fall away. This idea, you know, where's, where's the nearest pump? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, that, what happens if I run out of battery? That's not going to be there anymore. I remember years ago, road testing a, an electric Mitsubishi. I can't remember the name of the model, but it was a very small car and it was one of the first kind of out there. And uh, But you had to charge it overnight, pretty much. So you'd leave it plugged in. And, you know, the next day, I mean, I'm sure it was done within hours, but the best time to do it was overnight, literally plug it into the mains. And it took that long. I mean that's unthinkable now. Yeah, it's it's a long uh, it's a long while at the power rating of a house, but it's a lot like a mobile phone. You you know you go home in the evening, you plug your phone in, next day is fully charged, something like that. But you know, 
it's an overrated issue. Actually, 70% of people in our country have got access to off-street parking so they can charge at home. And yet, there's still a big issue in the media, in government circles, and, and the industry talking about what about everybody else? You know, where are they going to charge it? And our response to that frequently is to say, look, nobody has a petrol pump at home right now. That's never been a thing. Why does it need to be a thing for electric cars? <laughs> absolutely, yeah. A- absolutely right. No one ever thought that was weird, that you didn't have a petrol pump. Yeah. <laughs> That would have been curious. Listen, we, should we do some politics here? Because there's a couple of things, Dale, mm. that, that we need to tuck into. Um, and one of them is that, that what you and the Good Law Project have been up to. And have you been changing government planning? Uh, yeah, government's approach to planning policy. I mean, for probably about a year now, we've been nagging away at the government to review the national policy statement around energy. This is what governs planning permission for fossil-powered stations, nuclear, renewables, everything in the energy space. And, you know, it was written 10 years ago, and our argument was a lot of things have happened in the meantime. Like We signed the Paris Accord uh, five years ago now, and we've adopted the 2050 zero carbon target. And even this week, that target got a little bit um, foreshortened, you know, 78% by 2035. Boris issued his 10 pointless plan, which I thought was pointless, but apparently not. It's going to be a part of this new review that the government have announced they are undertaking. So we've won the battle. They're saying, yes, we need to review the planning policy for energy, and we need to take into account all of these things that have changed and all government policy, including Boris Johnson's 10-point plan, which uh, that surprised me because I thought it was just an off-the-cuff kind of piece of rubbish, quite frankly. Uh, But now it's got to be taken into account. And at the moment, there's like a a predisposition in favor of fossil fuels in the old Rex, that can't possibly happen in a world where we have to fight the climate crisis. So it's quite exciting. There's going to be um, a public consultation. There's going to be a wide-ranging assessment of of the impact on all sorts of things, but especially climate policy. And I think we're going to end up with an energy planning policy that's properly fit for purpose. And off the back of that, we've been chasing them about aviation policy for the last few months to say, same thing exists here, guys. Policy's out of date. Climate change has come along and planning policy for aviation is out of touch. Will you review it? And they've been saying, no, no, no. This week they said to us, look, give us till Friday and we'll give you an answer. And we have a feeling the answer is going to be yes. Fantastic. So things are moving. It feels that way. You know, when you look at the third runway for Heathrow, uh, in our case, I think it was Manston Airport that we were particularly uh, picking up the case for. You, you look at those and, you, and somebody now is going to have to argue that giving permission for a new runway is consistent somehow with our zero carbon targets by 2050. Yeah. That's going to be a tough, tough argument to make. As if that wasn't enough. Uh, we had a question from Jamie on Twitter who says, why on earth are you meeting the Conservatives? And... <laughs> Which tie again ties in with making things happen, changes afoot, and then I stumble across your Facebook page, and I thought it was a, I thought it was a picture of Reservoir Dogs at first. <laughs> That's right, it's what but I it's thought. A, it's actually you and the Environment Secretary George Eustace and a, a couple of other people there as well in the picture. But it's it's quite a cool picture actually. Yeah, a couple of other Tories actually. Is that um, what they are? There was so a whole group of them. Yeah, and- Dale, a whole group. What's the collective? No, let's not do that. Yeah. Uh, so three of them and one of you. Uh, yeah. So um, I mean, it's it's in keeping with our work with uh, people like the Daily Express to to yep. talk outside of our own bubbles to reach other people and and you know get them on board and that kind of stuff. And in, and in this particular case, I had a funny day because in the morning I had a Zoom call with the uh, Transport Minister Rachel McLean. 
talking about the electric highway and government's plans and our plans and that kind of stuff. And, you know, I haven't spoken to a government minister in, in many years. So that was, that was a new thing. And then in the afternoon, we had a site visit to one of our wind farms. It's actually the last wind farm built in England, which I did mention to the environment minister. And I told him why, because the conservatives shut down onshore wind. Yeah. But I had a meeting with him. There's a local mayoral candidate and the leader of a local council. And when they asked, we thought, oh, do we want to do this? Give them a photo op. And I thought, do you know what? I should meet them and take the chance to talk to them. And we had a great chat and it was, it was really worth doing. But I saw that picture and I thought Reservoir Dogs on Facebook. I'm like, I'm Mr. Green. The bloke on my left is Mr. Blue for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic <laughs> picture. I've met George Eustace a couple of times and he's one, I don't, I mean, whatever his politics are and however you were able to break bread, but he's a, he's a very nice bloke. I, I know that much. I remember thinking, I, I don't imagine this man is capable of being horrible to anybody. Seemed like a right top chap. Do you know what? They were all really nice blokes. The mayoral candidate was a nice guy, the leader of the local council, uh, and George. And we had a good chat about electric cars, hydrogen, green gas. There's so much stuff that he didn't know, which surprises me. Our green gas plan has been out in the world for five years. Um, but anyway, we had the convo. Uh, I gave him a copy of my book. They're all holding a copy in the photograph, yeah, which is quite amusing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I'm going to send him the gas plan uh, because he's interested in it. And, you know, Fantastic. it's about influencing people that can do something. That's, yeah. uh, it's like buses, right? I haven't seen a government minister for years. And then in one day, two come along. Two come along at the same yeah. time. Uh, it's interesting because you say they're all nice blokes. I mean, you know, that's how they get you, Dale. They're just like the Scientologists. That's how they do it. <laughs> So they come around your house and, you know, they're all nice to you. And, and then before you know it, give it a couple of months and, you know, you'll be filling out that application to join the party. And, you know, who knows what's going to happen? Well, you know, David Cameron nearly had me back in his husky <laughs> hugging days. I don't well, know he was if you there, wasn't he? He was making all the right noises. All the right noises. Absolutely. And it was off the back of uh, a long spell with Tony Blair, who'd become quite unpopular. The Iraq war kind of put yeah. me off and that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. And he was making all the right noises. We met at a windmill. And I thought, you know what, maybe, maybe maybe this guy is genuine. He promised to lead the greenest government ever, didn't he? By the time he left office, he was talking about environment stuff as green crap, and he'd shut down the wind and solar industries. And it's like, oh, my God, you couldn't have got a more polar opposite outcome to the one he promised us. Somebody did tell me a little while back that he got very bad advice on specific green policies, but just on the advice as to whether it mattered, whether the whole thing electorally mattered and he was strongly advised i'm told i mean he's got his own head he's not stupid but that you know don't even worry about this dave in fact there's you know there's, there's more points in going the other way hence the green crap and, and the like so whether that is true i don't know but it kind of does look like that i mean something happened because as you say he was cocking his leg over a husky one minute and then kind of shutting down the solar industry the next Stuck a little windmill on the roof of his house in London as well, which is a bit of a futile thing. That should have been a giveaway. Um, yeah. but what happened is 100 Tory MPs wrote to him to say, look, you know, uh, our constituents are against this, this you know, crazy wind thing. And um, I do tend to think that wind energy happens in the shires, out in the countryside, which tend to be Tory voting areas. And so probably electorally, it wasn't a a lost issue for him in terms of votes. You know, it was okay to shut down the wind industry and not lose much uh, core conservative vote. Yeah, it's kind of strange because you listen to the sort of Rhys Mogg characters. I mean, there's another one that gets you, but they're like hypnotists, these guys, because you meet them and you go, God, you're a really nice bloke. You're the poshest man. He's so posh he can hardly speak. And I thought, man, this is Rhys Mogg. He's a you know, decent chap. But then I think, well, 
he would be in that category, I think. He would probably say my constituents have written, written to me saying they don't give a shit about this stuff. And simultaneously, he's a practicing Christian who you'd have thought would want to look after the land, this green and pleasant land and all that goes with it. How many hymns are written about, you know, rivers and seas and the natural environment, etc. You know, where does that sit within your religious philosophy? Yeah, I have no idea. I think um, religious people can justify anything, actually. If you look in, uh, look back through history, well, a lot of bad stuff has happened in the name of religion. Locusts, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> At a major summit last week, Joe Biden, a procession of world leaders, fretted, of course, over the spiraling dangers of the climate crisis, with some pledging further cuts to planet heating emissions, others touting their embrace of electric cars, and a few vowing to end coal. Now, in the US, however, Biden's political components were focused on one pressing matter, meat. And the headline on the screens of Fox News, Dale, was Bye Bye Burgers. <laughs> Brilliant. Is America really going to kiss goodbye to the hamburger? Hey, I have no idea. Um, but you remind me, I was just reading a, a piece on the government website just now, actually, about this new 2035, 78% carbon cut target announced yeah. announced this week and the government announced it like it was like a big deal we're going in hard on climate change and that kind of stuff and it you know it sounded pretty good turns out that what they were doing was simply following the law the 2008 climate act obliges them to adopt the uh, output of the climate change committee the sixth carbon budget output okay. says 78 percent by 2035 and they adopted it because they had to dressed it up as a, like a big ta-da moment from the government. But at the bottom of this piece I was reading, the government said just because we're adopting the target doesn't mean we're adopting the policies of the Climate Change Committee, and particularly on diet. So this is a government that's still wedded to the idea of eating meat. Yeah. But we'll so they, it's, it's interesting that. So you make all the noise, you say this, is you dress it like a policy, you, you, you kind of reap the uh, initial environmental house points, and then as it turns out, not only is it not actually your policy, but you might not adhere to it anyway. Well, the targets they're going to adhere to, what they're saying is they're not going to follow the policy advice, which is to give up meat, which is interesting. But I, it, won't, um, it won't matter. Here's a question from Chris. Uh, what make are your bright pink trainers, Dale? I love them. <laughs> Fab. I love them too. Uh, they're APL. It's an American brand, and I found them online. Um, yeah. so Vegan friendly. Oh, yeah, completely. Well, I would say they're animal friendly. Animal friendly, indeed. Yeah. Yes, that's the better word. <laughs> uh, this one from Sheila. Great to hear that Ecotricity is back at WOMAD this year. Uh, will you be doing your debates again? Yeah, we're hoping to. We're hoping John Snow will come and join us and host that um, on the Ecotricity stage in the, um, I've got, I think it's in the Arboretum, isn't it? And uh, we're hoping also to do maybe do a live uh, Zero Carbonista podcast, Ian. Well, yeah. I'm not sure if we've asked you yet, but uh, if you're up for it. No, I, yeah, I spoke to one of your many handlers uh, on this point, Dale. And, uh, <laughs> course, Which one? He, uh, oh, there's hundreds. Because uh, <laughs> we were do it, meant to do it last year, weren't we? And then, of course, it all got called off because of COVID and stuff. Come and have some fun in the sun with us at WOMAD then. Yeah. Tell us about a, a little bit about WOMAD for those who don't know. World of Music and Dance is what the acronym stands for. And it's a, a field. I don't know how many tens of thousands of people go there. I'd guess a couple. Yeah. And a whole bunch of stages and uh, food. Crazy amounts of vegan fast food available. There's sure. beer. Um, if it rains, it'll be muddy. Uh, if, if the sun shines, it'll be hot. There's a lot of camping going on and stuff like that. It's a festival. It's a party, really. Uh, but but themed around music, 
the world of music and people come from all over the world to play yeah. there. Whether that's possible this year, though, looks a little bit in doubt uh, because of travel restrictions and stuff. Yeah, yeah. There won't be a lot of Indian music there this year, I think. Yeah, I think that's a, it's going to be a really sad loss, isn't it? The way that that's all, all panning out and particularly for the, the aforementioned. But as you say, I mean, just trying to get any kind of festival going in any form is, I mean, good luck to even being able to have one at all. Yeah. Um, you know, even if it doesn't come in its kind of traditional form. Yeah, I think it's a transition year for festivals. To, you know, they'll be on, but they'll be slightly different to what they've been before. We talked about seagrass, didn't we, the other day? Did you spot this story? 16,000 seagrass seed bags and 2,200 seedling bags are being planted by Ocean Conservation Trust uh, to tackle climate change in the UK. No, I didn't see that. Uh, but it does seem that there's a lot happening on the seagrass front. You know, there are a lot of people into it. And actually, it's been around for a while in terms yep. of being understood to be a, a great way to rewild the oceans. And I think we talked last week about the Spanish chef that was turning it into food, didn't we? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is amazing. But I love the idea. And we're looking for land now uh, for rewilding projects. And we're just adding to the kind of shopping list, if you yep. like, the idea of foreshore. If we can find land with a bit of coast as well, then we're, sure. we're looking to rewild the ocean and the land in the same project. Uh, and just to bring you back to another, we just talked about meat um, and we, we touched on the American, you know, is the burger going? Sales of British beef saw across the world. Uh, apparently, our meat market is growing more popular in asia i mean this is entirely the wrong direction of travel i mean you know i know hardened meat eaters that now look at these stories and think no this is this ain't right but doesn't everybody know that by now it's so irresponsible isn't it i think i saw liz truss is it a minister for something to do with food yeah. uh, boasting about the growth of sales of british beef and whenever i read the word british beef i imagine people puffing up their chests and saying british beef you know it's the best in the <laughs> world and that's what they say and and it's like oh come on guys you know it's still beef uh, it's still an animal and it's still driving the climate crisis and you want to grow our exports of it how does that make any sense and a final question from Andrew, who's on LinkedIn. He says, Dale Vince is now on LinkedIn, I see. Whatever next? <laughs> Madness. I don't even know what LinkedIn is really all about. Uh, but, uh, you know, I jumped in. Business social network, I think. It, I yeah. I've yeah. quite understood it myself. But I know people who kind of live by it in a way. Yeah. Well, yeah, that was the impression I got. It was like yeah. a Facebook for business people or something like that. I don't know. Um, but we've already had some amazing contact come from it. So I've only been there a day. I think, wow. uh, you know, in the virtual sense. And um, yeah, we've had some amazing contacts for our sky mining project. So uh, I would imagine, yeah, I would imagine that it's, there would have been a lot of people very happy to see you on there. It, it, it's in a curious way. It's probably the most perfect of all networks to be on. Um, I mean, you can have fun on Twitter and do loads of stuff on Facebook as, as we do, of course, but I can see people when it comes to that whole issue of, you know, convincing people or educating people or bringing people on side. I'd imagine that's probably the perfect place to be where, where folk can look around and go, ah, oh, so the Ecotricity boys are in town. I, I guess given that one of the big things that we've been doing is to kind of businessify, if you like, uh, environment stuff, you know, make the business case for doing environment yeah. things in energy, transport and food, it kind of does make sense to have a deeper engagement with a business audience because we need to persuade these people and, and you know, show them what's possible and share what we know and have them share what they know to uh, make more green business happen. Yeah, I think I said to you the other day that I, it, I can't remember what they're called, but it's something like Republicans for the Environment or something like that. And they've just worked on the basic premise that firstly, 
why would you not be kind to the planet if you possibly can be? And if you can make a few quid along the way, then it's a, it's a complete no-brainer. Um, and you'd think that everybody, you'd almost think that Republicans or conservatives in this country would be far more susceptible and embracing of that kind of notion because it, it just makes sense. It's coming. So last week, uh, Johnson announced something to do with the green economy and green jobs and stuff. And he started by saying, look, it's not about bunny hugging. This is about jobs and economy. This yeah, is, yeah. you know, serious business, you know, kind of stuff. And this is how uh, some people will find green issues acceptable by saying, look, it's not about being nice to anybody or being nice to the environment. It's about jobs and money. And, and that's fine. Uh, as long as they're doing the right thing, green things, then, you know, who cares? It's like veganism, whether you do it for animals, for your personal health or for the climate crisis. I don't care as yeah. long as you do it. do it. And and I think it's unarguable that there's a business case for environment measures on energy, transport and food. And the playing field currently, the economic playing field is skewed to make fossil fuels and animal farming more um, profitable than it really should be because it avoids its actual cost and has huge subsidies which aren't available to the good things. And And if we can change that, and it's government that can really do that. But if we sure. can change the playing field, level it up at least, yep. we don't have to tip it towards renewables and plant-based living because they're naturally better and cheaper anyway. Just level it up and nature will take its course and the old way of doing things will die out. Good point to finish, Rob. Uh, Dale, have a cracking week. Uh, we'll speak in seven days. Or just, uh, just over. Uh, nine, over nine. Nine days. Yeah. Oh, it'll feel like forever, Ian. I'm going to be pining. <laughs> Have a good week. Yeah, you too. See you later. That is it for this episode. Don't forget, of course, to follow this podcast from your podcast provider so you get each new episode automatically. Do leave a review there as well. And the really important bit, uh, make sure you follow Dale on social media, twitter.com slash dalevince, facebook.com slash dalevince, and also on LinkedIn as well. Follow Dale Vince there too. And we'll see you in a week. Zero carbon east off.